0: So, as I, as I just dive into this, keep, keep passing stuff around, maybe it'll distract you, you'll give twice as much as you normally do, and everybody will be happy here. So, uh, my name is Mike Morrison, I, I'm on staff here, work with the Young Adults Ministry, and uh, it's my privilege to get to open God's Word with you today. Uh, pretty cool to get to have Bethany College here. I myself am a Bethany College grad, so I am particularly thankful for that school and what they're all about. And... Uh, just up here, Luke and I went at the same time, and uh, Luke's a, a brilliant guy, a great teacher, a great theologian, but I think it's safe to say that when, when Luke and I were in dorm rooms across the hall from each other, I think his biggest project wasn't an academic one, but it was a ninja movie. It was, uh, it was called Revenge of the Fist. Anybody seen Revenge of the Fist? I played a small cameo in said movie, Revenge of the Fist. I was a, I was an ninja who could catch poison darts between my fingers, so it's a pretty, pretty impressive thing. So... Uh, I just I just think I have to give a shout out to Revenge of the Fifth if Luke's here. Um, we're in the middle of this series that we've been going through. Uh, each week we've been walking through these pastoral epistles, these letters from Paul to Timothy and Titus, and uh, right now we're coming to the end of Paul's first letter to Timothy. So this is what's happening here before we continue on with Second Timothy. And uh, this gives us a bit of a chance, a bit of an opportunity to kind of consider why Paul wraps up this whole thing the way that he does things the way that he does in this letter here. So last week, Pastor Bruce talked about Paul's words regarding wealth, regarding contentment, uh, regarding true riches, and he he made us all feel very rich. Made us all feel like we have a lot to really be thankful for, and he did that to to remind us that we need to hear these words for ourselves. That we can't just be assuming that these things apply only to others and not to us. So he was reminding us of that. So Bruce walked us through verses uh, 3 to 10 in chapter 6, where it talks about all these things. And then he skipped ahead to verses... uh, 17 to the end of the whole thing, where Paul gives another warning about those who are rich in the present age. You can kind of grab that from the conclusion there. So the very final bit of this chapter was, was spoken about last week by Pastor Bruce, but we'll be dealing with the stuff that comes just before that. So if you open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 6, you'll be able to find where we're at, starting in verse 11. I don't know if we have the words on the screen. We might know, but you can follow along there, starting in verse 11. So I'm just going to read this. It says this, Best for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one one has seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion Amen Let's pray together God we do uh, thank you just for the opportunity of what it is to be able to gather together and These amazing, lofty, majestic words of who you are. Or even as we, we pray now and as we pray throughout the service, Lord, we don't want to think of those things tritely, flipping. help us to understand that you are the one who does not approach your life. Lord, help us to understand just what an amazing thing it is that we can approach you with confidence and blood just help to amaze us with At this, this today Just have mercy upon to me. Just help me. okay so if we think back what's what's been going on in this letter so far We're kind of thinking about how he concludes this letter how Paul concludes this letter it's time to kind of think back a little bit of what's been happening Uh what's this whole thing been about? Paul's Paul's letter to Timothy, what's this whole thing been about so far? If if you race back in your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 3, if you want to look there, I'm going to read it anyway, so it doesn't matter if you don't find it in time, but chapter 1, verse 3, you can see that Paul says this, this is kind of the occasion behind the whole letter here, he says this, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. This is the basic occasion. This is kind of the thrust behind the whole letter here. Uh, And we've talked about this a lot. This false teaching, this problem of false teachers in in Ephesus. And uh, this teaching is other than what Timothy has received, what Paul has been preaching, what Paul has been sharing with Timothy. And the real devastating thing in this letter, there's there's lots of other letters in the New Testament where an issue of false teaching is is at hand. But the the real devastating thing here is that this other teaching is coming from appointed leaders within the church. Within their own ranks, within their own community, within people who actually have authority to be teaching and to be uh, sharing what the true gospel is, but they're teaching this other uh, doctrine, called saying. So they're not just swooping in. So it's a really tricky thing. So there's this messy situation going on in Ephesus. Timothy is Paul's trusted cleanup man, sent in there to kind of take care of the job, to be the cleanup guy. So that's the basic thing of what's going on occasion wise. So if this is the occasion, if we hold this in mind of the occasion, What does Paul actually say about it? What does he actually say to do in the midst of this circumstance? And uh, if we reflect on it, it's not terribly complex as far as a summary goes. As far as a summary goes of what he's actually saying. There's there's this basic two-sided sort of thing that Paul's been doing throughout the whole letter. If you think back with me, Paul says, okay, you have these false teachers over here. They're doing this sort of thing. They're in love with these sorts of things. They're doing this sort of lifestyle. This is who they are. But you, Timothy not like that. This is what you're charging. You. So throughout, he's bouncing back between a denunciation of these false teachers and then charging Timothy to be other than them. So, and then there's you. Then there's you. This is, this is the other side of the thing. And this takes us to exactly where we're at here at the beginning of verse 11. Because we've come out of these, these warnings and these cautions about riches and about those who love money. And in verse 11, how does Paul start? He says, but as for you, These things here, it's not just the cravings of wealth and riches and all of this that he's been talking about just before. It encompasses this whole idea of this other side, this other grouping of people, of, of these false teachers, all these people. Paul's saying, flee these things to the O man of God. And he's giving him this title here. I want us to capture this. He's giving him this title here, O man of God. He's not describing him not saying this is a statement. He's not saying, be a man of God. You are a man of God. That's, that's not what he's actually saying. It's a title. He's calling this man of God. Something he is. I love this idea here because at the, at the end of this whole letter, that we can walk. At the end of this whole letter, Paul's rooting this whole thing, this whole charge to Timothy, he's rooting this whole thing in his rock solid identity. This identity that reminds Timothy that no, 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 you're not about all this other stuff. You're about something else. Yeah, and, and I just think we don't get this idea hugely in our, in our culture. This idea of title and importance of that. And you can think to other places throughout scriptures where name means so much. Someone gets renamed for a certain reason. Another thing, I was, I was thinking back uh, to, you know, books written throughout the Christian tradition. And lots of times back in the day, uh, these books written for a Christian audience, they would address you as Christian in the book. So you'd be reading the book, and it would say, remind yourself of this, Christian. It would call you that by name, Christian, in this book. And, and so there's this intentionality there where the author wanted to remind you that you, you need to remember who you are need to remember, as you read this, you're not approaching this neutrally as if that were possible in the first place. You're reading this as a Christian. You're reading this as someone who belongs to this family who's been called and bears the name of Christ. There's a big difference. Remember who you are. And so just, just this address alone, calling a man of God, brings up all of these sort of connotations. And I just think we need this so much in our experience, in our vision. Because, uh, you know, the, the idea of Christian identity, that could be a huge sermon series and a huge topic of discussion in itself. So we're not going to go there too much. But this is just something that's so basic, so foundational, so completely important throughout the New Testament. Uh, even we heard flipping, flipping through it. I didn't even know that was going to happen. But you look at how Paul starts all these his letters. And, and he always has this formula of saying, to the holy ones, the saints in Christ Jesus, in Philippi. say to the Philippians. Because that's not who they are, primarily. They are the holy ones. They are the saints in Christ Jesus who have to be. This is how he addresses it. And then in these letters, Paul often will go on to, to berate them for ways that they need to get their act together. For ways that they need to shape up. For, for ways that they've been uh, straying away from the Lord. So they're obviously flawed people. There's obviously imperfections here. Doesn't, that doesn't change who they are. That doesn't change how he begins these letters, how he starts off these addresses. At the very outset, you are holy ones in That's how he starts. I just think, when was the last time any of us came to church on a Sunday morning, gathered together with other believers, with just a heavy sense of remedy? fellowship. So it's, 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 yes, there are flaws, there are issues, there are imperfections, there are people who might be sitting 20 feet away from you who have caused you great pain in the church. That's a very realistic thing. That's not to be taken lightly, but that does not change the ultimate reality about who you are. That's what's going on here. The ultimate reality is that you're in Christ. All these people here, all us here. God's chosen, holy ones, God's saints, called out, gathered together the first five words. So moving on, Paul says, flee from all those things and pursue these things. Instead, righteousness, godliness, godliness, this word that has come up so much in these epistles, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Now again, this, this is one of those lists of virtues that you can either breeze over and just kind of read them all really quick stop and, and talk about each individual one a month if you want to. But the main thing here is that there's this contrast between what's being said about these false teachers and their lifestyle throughout this whole letter and these things that you're to pursue. Typically. So there's these people over here that go after money, who go after arrogance and elitism, who go after controversy and strife. But you're not going to be like that Timothy. pursue these things. Run from that Gentleness gentleness. is interesting here, isn't it? It's kind of of interesting in the context of this sort of letter, I think. Throughout this whole letter, Paul's been all fired up about dressing down these false teachers, about dressing down these opponents, pointing out their shortcomings, pointing out how they're not remaining true to the teaching of the gospel. And here in the midst of that, Paul says, Timothy, pursue gentleness. I just think, what what a necessary reminder letter that's all about avoiding false teaching like a plague, running from this stuff, all about making sure you're holding fast to the one true gospel, Paul still stops and says, Timothy, aim for gentleness. Don't, don't be a hothead in all of this stuff. Don't, don't be so worked up about all of this stuff that you become an angry lunatic who completely loses all credibility as a witness in the wider world around. Pursue righteousness, but pursue gentleness. Keep these two things together. They don't need to be an enemy of each other, is what he's saying. I think we don't get that sometimes. He's reminding him these things don't need to be mutually exclusive. Righteousness, gentleness. Keep these things together. Then Paul says in verse 12, moving on, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So, fight the good fight. This this is really a summary of everything Timothy's been encouraged to do so far. Right? Paul, Paul's saying there's a war going on in all of this. In case you haven't caught on. There's a war going on in all of this. This isn't a game, this isn't a joke. You need to be prepared to battle. You need to stay in the fight. And the real sense that comes out of, of, of this statement here is that this whole thing that Timothy is charged to deal with is going to be a daily, wearisome, exhausting battle through which he needs to persevere. You do need to fight, but it's the good fight. It's the good fight of the faith. You need to fight. So fight it well. That's the idea here. And I I, I think we need to hear this real somber caution about fighting the good fight. Because this is all over the New Testament. This is all over Scripture. Uh, the, The Christian life isn't easy isn't guaranteed to be easy anywhere. There's a battle to be fought daily. And you look at how Paul addresses this whole issue. You look at Ephesians 6, this famous passage about the armor of God. He's reminding the Ephesians that this isn't a joke. There is a battle to be fought. You need to be prepared to go into this battle daily. This is the reminder here. So connected to this, this command to fight the good fight, here in verse 12, you see him say, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. This, this take hold, this idea here, is this real forceful, active word in the Greek here. It's take hold, grab, seize this eternal life. To, to which you're called. And it makes you think, what does it mean to grab hold of eternal life? We talked about this a little bit in our, in our lifetime class before uh, the service began. What does it mean to take hold of eternal life? Well, I think we need to see that this is connected to this command to fight the good fight. Right before, the command is to fight the good fight, take hold of eternal life. And so the idea is that through fighting the good fight, take hold of this eternal life to which you've been called. And it's kind of like if we say something like, play hard, win the game. Right? Those are two completely separate imperative statements. Play hard, I'm telling you to do that, win the game. But you don't have the second thing without the first thing. That's what's happening here. Fight the good fight, take hold of the good. I think that's a bit of what's going on with this this, this charge to take hold of eternal life. But I think there's something more going on, too. And uh, and that's this. The authors of the New Testament, the authors of the New Testament knew themselves to be living in a period where God's glorious, final, new age and the present evil age, as it's described in Galatians, the present evil age overlap. And we'll never understand the writers of the New Testament, and Paul in particular, if we don't understand that for them, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, so the whole, the whole Jesus event, if you can call it, the Jesus event was the thing that convinced them that God's final, heavenly, eternal age had begun. It started. It had already launched. So the, the, the technical term is the eschatological age, which just means the final age. It's already begun. It's already started. But... Gasping a breath. Paul voice always very close to point out hold these two things together. Remember that. Remember that you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Remember that there's still a battle to be fought. And that's why, as we talked about, there is still this battle to be fought. There is still this enemy to stand firm against. So old age hasn't entirely passed away yet. So it's this already not yet idea. Christ's kingdom is 100% assured, but it's not fully actual at this point. And, and it's because of this mindset, it's because of this mindset that we know that for Paul, eternal life wasn't just something to be attained once you kick the bucket. It wasn't. It wasn't just something to wait for. And you see this all over the Gospel of John. We've been preaching through the Gospel of John to young adults, and this is something that you see a lot. Uh, for example, Jesus says in John five twenty four, Truly I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not will get it. Not will receive it. Not will one day wake up and realize that they have it. Has eternal life. You believe the one who sent me. So, now, full disclosure, I'm a big fan of eternal life. I'm a big fan of eternal life, and I think it's a good thing to be a fan of eternal life. Believe it or not, as a Christian, I think that's okay. And it seems me that Jesus was very pleased for us to be excited and thankful about eternal life. Very much so. And, and we talked about this in our in our lifetime discussion before, and I think this might be different for different people, so I'm not trying to say this is a normative sort of thing, because you've maybe come across this and maybe haven't. But eternal life has come under a bit of criticism from some quarters within the Christian community, within uh, the evangelical uh, world of, of teaching and scholarship. And, uh, you know, well, one example of that is you've maybe heard the phrase that Christians are so heavenly-minded that they're of that they're of no earthly good, and you just think, ouch, that's too, that's too bad, that's too bad that that's, that's a charge that's set against Christianity, and it really is too bad, because it's not a biblical idea to be of no earthly good, at all, a pretty smart guy once said that we should pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, this whole idea of these two things being together, so this is true, but I, I, I get really bothered by people who not heavenly mindedness. I'm starting to more and more a little bit because it seems to me that Paul here is telling Timothy to be of earthly good because he's to be heavenly minded. Think of how that holds together. Be excited about eternal life, Timothy. Go after it, seize it, grab onto it, and do it through fighting a good fight, that you can call fight. So I've got to, I'm going to wrap up here and move on. Skim over a couple of things. So, starting in verse 14, move over to this. Paul commands Timothy to keep the commandment, meaning all of this. Keep the commandment, all of this stuff that I've been charging you to. Keep it unstained and free from reproach until Jesus comes, who God will reveal at the right time. And then look at this. Look at this. As soon as Paul mentions Jesus and God revealing as soon as he mentions this, he cuts off talking about what he's talking about, he just launches into the He cuts off what he's talking about, and he says, God, he who is the blessed, only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor, eternal dominion forever. Amen. This is doxology. Title of the Psalm Docus, the, the Doxology. This is Doxology. This is Praise, and Glorification of God. It's, it's the loftiest, most majestic language used to exalt the name of God. An important thing to understand, because some people don't understand this, but the loftiness of the language doesn't mean that it's not carefully chosen. It's not, it's not just a bunch of random superlatives thrown out there, kind of lumping it together and saying, okay, this is how we praise God. We just say he's the best at everything. It's carefully chosen language, a specific language here. A huge, majestic, lofty language. Intentionality is behind this. So man, there's, there's, there's so much that we can say about this. We've been talking about this beautiful doxology that we find here here's, here's what we will say, just to sum it up. End of this whole letter. At the end of this serious exhortation to Timothy to put in gutsy, difficult effort and work to contend for the gospel, at the end of his command to stand firm despite opposition, Paul reminds Timothy, This is the one who called you. Timothy, this is the one who called you. The blessed, only sovereign who alone has immortality, dwells in unapproachable light, has eternal. Dominion, eternal rule, this is the one on whose behalf you're fighting. This is the one you're contending for. So, so this whole thing, this whole thing needs to be anchored in God himself. It needs to be anchored in doxology. Praise, magnification of God. When I, when I was studying... Theology in Vancouver. I took a, a systematic theology class with GI Packer. Uh, he's eighty, he's still living, he's 87 years old, he's turning 88 in a few months now. Sharp as attack, absolutely sharp as a tack still. And he's already in the books as one of the most significant theologians of the whole 20th century, as a living, as a living theologian. And every day in the systematic theology class, Jerry Packer would walk into the class and he'd say, What is theology for? And he taught us to all respond by saying, Doxology. That was our response we sing the doxology at the start of every class. And his, and his point was, he made this very clear, his point was, all of this study, all of this work to begin to understand who God is, to begin to understand his scriptures, to begin to understand his character, all of this is completely on the wrong track if it's not done for the praise and glorification of God. To look for like Jesus Christ. That might, that might sound like an obvious thing, but believe me, a lot of ways of theology can be done that is not about that at all so G.I. Pack was very intent on that what is theology for? doxology period always that's the case so this this issue goes goes for every aspect of our lives of our service of our ministry as Christians if doxology if the praise and magnifying of God isn't the overarching goal and end of this whole thing then what is? what's taking its place. And and this this is not at all to say that other things, other ends, other goals are not good things. They absolutely are. There are plenty of other goals that are good things. But but we need to see that for Paul the New Testament, the glory of God is not simply one good thing among many other good things. For Paul, it's the good thing from which all other pursuits derive their goodness. Absolutely big difference between this. There's, a big, there's a big difference between, so you, you just think of our context here, of course. There's a big difference between doxology being one of the things we do as a church, and we do a lot of things, doxology just happens to be one of the things we do, and a difference between everything that we do here and exist for is an expression As you, as you leave today, and I, I, this is so cool how this just connects to who we are as a, as a church, especially coming up on this anniversary year and everything. As you leave today, you can look at the plaque. It's on the outside wall of this building. It was put there when this when this building was erected. And uh, you look at it, and it says, Forest Grove Community Church, dedicated. Idea here is that our mission, our purpose, our committees, all of the things that we do, everything falls under that. Everything falls under that. This is the anchor that keeps us where we need to be. So, like I said, all those other things absolutely good things, all the things that we exist for and about, but it all falls under that. And you, and you ask the question, why are we dedicated to the glory of God? Why is this, why is this one of the aims? Well, the answer is because God That's the reality, the eternal reality. And I think—I don't know about you, but I think as a church, I want to be about reality. I want to be about what's real. God's glory is God's glory is real. So we're going to wrap up, wrap up here. I want to pray, and then in closing, I'm just going to send us out reading this doxology again, remind us all of what it says. So let's, let's uh, pray and just remind ourselves of this huge encouragement that all of us—that you, God's chosen and holy ones, like we talked about. Called to eternal life, called to fight the good fight by this God. By this God. So let's pray together. Father, we're sincerely humbled and uh, just a little overwhelmed even by when we think about these words, this text here, especially these closing words here. And Lord, I do ask that you can help, even though these are huge. Gigantic ideas and concepts that will never fully really wrap our minds around. Help, help us to be something that challenges us. Help us to be something that we dwell on and that we and that we sink our teeth into to understand what it means that we've been called, loved, uh, chosen, just set aside for, for your purposes by a God who's kind of uh, what we'll dwelling in we Lord, I do ask that we can absolutely understand what it means to be by you, Jesus. Understand what it means to be adopted by you as your children, and to never ever lose sight of that, but at the same time to just have a real sincere understanding of whatever transition is, and just the might of the Buddhism And just like how Paul anchors this whole thing, this whole charge to Timothy, and the strength, sovereignty, and bigness of God, Lord, help us as we just go about our daily tasks things that are jobs and schools and whatever. Just give us a, a, an encouraging, big sense of who you are. So Lord, teach us the things that you need to teach us by your Holy Spirit. We just thank you for today the opportunity that it is to gather. So we ask that you be with us throughout this week. We just thank you. Jesus Hey. Okay. So, done for today. going to wrap up with this. So, this this is this is the doxology here. The doxology. So all of us here, Forest Grove Community Church, may you go in the love Grace and peace of he who is the blessed and only sovereign. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, no one has seen or